0: And God, as we come to this place today, uh, coming from different situations, maybe it's a joyful situation, maybe it's a discouraging situation, maybe we're caught in some struggle that is taking over our thoughts in the moment. We pray, God, whatever it is that we're coming to, or coming here today with, we pray that your Spirit would speak. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us, that you would deliver us, that you would strengthen us, you would encourage us. We pray that you would change us most of all. Into the image of your Son Jesus, we pray in His name, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. Well, they call him the King of the High Wire. Nick Walenda uh, is an eleven-time Guinness World Record holder, and probably the thing he's most famous for is actually his stunt in 2012 when he walked across the Niagara Falls Waterfall, on a tightrope. And to prepare for this stunning event, you know, something that you should not try at home, he decided, you know, I might as well practice a little bit. You know, the risk is high. And so he decided he was going to practice in a parking lot the whole week beforehand. And in this parking lot, he had local fire department fire trucks that were blasting water on him. And they had these massive fans, these industrial fans that were blowing air into his face, trying to simulate as best you can what it's like to walk across a tightrope with a waterfall. But if you can imagine, you can't really simulate something like that. You can't simulate being 1,800 feet uh, above and, and, and walking all the way across with all this water and wind blowing in your face. How am I supposed to do this? Course, there's 150,000 people who gathered live to watch this, and then ABC ran a special that evening. I think it ran at like 9:30 at night, something late, to make sure they had as many people, millions of people, watching this. And he made it across, so there's the end of the story. He made it across, but here's what's fascinating to me as I heard the story recently. What's fascinating to me is not just that he made it across and what happened on the rope and, and the big spectacle of this TV special. What's incredible to me is what happened after the event. I mean, you could imagine that this is one of those highlights of your career. This is the moment where you are literally in the spotlight. Everybody is watching just you for those minutes. And you you could imagine that this would be the moment that you would be uh, maybe inclined to to, uh, make it all about yourself. But what happens after the show, get this, for three hours, he picked up trash in the parking lot. For three hours. This, this is what he said, because there were journalists around covering the story, and they're wondering, why in the world is he doing this? So they interviewed him, and he said this. He said, My purpose is simply to help clean up after myself. The huge crowd left a great deal of trash behind, and I feel compelled to pitch in. Besides, after the inordinate amount of attention I sought and received, I need to keep myself grounded. Three hours of cleaning up debris is good for my soul. Humility does not come naturally to me. Isn't that amazing? Humility does not come naturally to me. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't either for me. I, it doesn't come naturally for any of us, I would say. And not only is humility unnatural, it's really uncommon because it's so unnatural. Humility is not the kind of thing that you can probably list 50 people that you know are humble. I mean, we live in a culture that doesn't necessarily cultivate that for us either, right? We live in a culture that wants to celebrate not humility, but celebrity. I mean, we, we celebrate the people who have the most followers and the most likes and the most views on YouTube. And, and we want to celebrate the, the candidates who can tear down the other candidate. And, and so we vote for the person who seems the most powerful and the most prestigious we, we, we are in a culture that really tries to elevate the strong and push down the weak. But it's not just the culture, right? This, this is the church. The church struggles with humility. I mean, we, we struggle to, to share our sins with other people, to confess our sins and our struggles because we don't want them to judge us the way they, or the way we judge them. Right, We know that we have these thoughts about other people and their problems and their issues and so if I put my issues out there then someone might treat me the way I treat them. And so we hide. And we're we're not humble enough to confess. Or, or maybe the people we elevate into leadership are, are people who are loud and boisterous and, and have all the success and, and, and make a big deal about themselves. And so we think, man, if we could get that person in leadership, if, if they can use their influence for the kingdom, but what we really mean is maybe they can make us powerful. Maybe they can make us popular. Maybe they can get us followers on Instagram. Whatever it is, right? The church struggles with humility it's all over the place. And so how how do we actually cultivate that? If it, if it's not something that's natural for us, how do we cultivate humility in our life? That's what I want to look at today. And so today we're committing or sorry, continuing our series for Advent. And if you're familiar with the church calendar or maybe you're new to church, Advent is the season where we celebrate the coming of Jesus and his birth, but also we celebrate looking ahead to his second coming. So if you want to think about it like a circle or a cycle, we're celebrating his birth, but we're celebrating the end when everything will be made new. And so Advent is this season that, that really celebrates the whole story of Jesus. You kind of get the whole picture at the beginning. And what's beautiful about the Advent season, in my opinion, is that what really is at the center of all these stories about Jesus' birth is humility. I mean, if you noticed last week when we started the series, Oscar was preaching, we have the story of this young Jewish girl, Mary, who's visited by an angel and is told that Jesus is going to be born in her, and that she is going to be this magnified, glorified position in the kingdom. She's going to have all this honor, and she just erupts in praise and gratitude and humility for what God has called her to do. And she has to trust God in humility that his promise is true. So all over the story is humility, but then we're going to back up this week and we're going to look at what does that promise actually mean? How does that promise come to us? And so we're going to the book of Isaiah, and in Isaiah's prophecy, he gives this promised child, and in the promise of the child, what I want to focus in on today is how it cultivates humility for us. This promise of a child, this humble child, actually shows us how to cultivate humility in our own hearts and so how do we do that first it starts with waiting if you're taking notes today the first point is waiting waiting look at verse one with me let's jump in he says this but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of zebulun and the land of naphtali but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the jordan galilee of the nations. Now pause right there for a moment. Isaiah, the author here, he's writing in the context of darkness. Think about it like this. What's happening in the history of Israel is Israel in the northern kingdom is about to be invaded by the Assyrian army. And in fact, Isaiah has been saying this is coming, this is coming, and now scholars believe when he's writing this that it's actually starting to happen. And so they estimate that it's somewhere around 733 B.C., and so the Assyrian army is coming in, now invading into their land. And you could imagine, if you know history in the Bible, 722 is when the city would fall. So it's, it's 10 years of invasion, 10 years of darkness. And this is just the beginning of what's about to happen. This is the beginning of what's about to happen, that they're going to fall, but now it's starting, and so they're they're kind of living in between what is beginning and what's going to happen. So if you're following me, now they are losing their homes. Now they are losing their family members. Now they are coming under the oppression of the Assyrian army, and so there's deep darkness, as Isaiah says. There's despair and depression. There's discouragement and worry. There's anxiety about the future. I don't know what's going to happen. We're right in the middle of the pain. The pain is fresh. It's real. It's new. And it continues. And there's this reversal right in verse 3. Look at what happens. He says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil." Now, this is fascinating because, again, he's painting this picture for eight chapters of darkness and and despair, and then there's this flip, and he says the deep darkness is now dispelled by an even greater light. An even greater light has come upon, and now because of this light, there's this eruption of joy. He says it four times. He says, increase its joy, they rejoice, as with joy at the harvest, they are glad, right? He's describing this incredible reversal, but don't miss it. Don't miss it. Look at the way he describes it. All the verbs, if you go to the Hebrew, are in, are in the perfect tense. We look at it and it looks like just the past tense, but the perfect tense is something that happened in the past, but it's, it's having a present effect even today. And In other words, Isaiah is describing this future victory, this future invasion of light as if it's already happened. He's telling the story of the future as if it's already in the past. And now they're living in between it. How do you do that? How do you live right now in the midst of the pain while there's this promise that is said to be already fulfilled? How how, how do you live in that in between status? The answer is humility. It's humility. See, humility, listen, humility waits between the pain and the promise. Humility waits between the pain of what you're experiencing, the darkness of what you're feeling, and the promise that God has said is already yours. Before his death, Henry Nowen, uh, who's an author, he, he wrote a book called Sabbatical Journeys. And in this book, he, he tells lots of different stories about uh, his life. It's kind of a memoir. And, and he tells one story of his friends who were these trapeze artists. And these friends, they were part of a group called the Flying Rudellas. And uh, because of this group, they, they traveled all around the world performing in these different uh, scenarios. And, and he said that they, they would tell him stories about what would happen and how it worked because he didn't know much about the trapeze artist world. And he said one of the stories really stuck with him. They, they were telling him how the, there's two different roles in trapeze work. You have the flyer and you have the catcher. And the flyer has a very distinct role. Maybe you've seen it before, where the flyer, at some point in the show, high above the ground, has to let go. And they fly through the air, as the name, you know, insinuates. They fly through the air, but at some point they have to let go, and their job is to stay still. And the catcher is on the other end, and the catcher, their job, obviously, is to catch. But there's a lot of time between where the flyer let's go and, and they're flying through the air waiting to see, is the catcher going to catch me? But here's the thing, their job is to stay as still as possible. To stay absolutely still. And this is what he said to, to Henry Nouwen. He said, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. He must wait. See, listen, waiting in that in-between, between the pain you're experiencing and the promise that God has given, that waiting is the work. That waiting is your work. Waiting to see God at work is the real work. We we can make our plans. We can make our schedules. We can try to budget out. We can try to predict the future. We can try to parent as good as we can. We can have as many conversations as we want. But listen to me. You cannot do the work by yourself. This is the mystery of God's providence. See, the beauty of God's providence is he, He wants you to come into His work. He has set up the world in such a way that he doesn't want to do his work by himself, even though he could. He's decided to invite you and me into it. And so he wants to get his work done through you. At your job, he wants to use you. In your family, he wants to use you. In, In your neighborhood, he wants to use you. All of the areas of your life, God wants to do his work in the world through you and me. But listen, he's never going to let you do it by yourself. The beauty of God's providence is somehow, some mysterious way, your work is completely dependent on His work. Your work that God has called you into to say, I'm going to be a light in this darkness. I'm going to be a person at my job who who shares the good news of Jesus. I'm going to be a person in my neighborhood who encourages people and checks on people. I'm going to be a person in my family who can share the love of Christ. That work is completely dependent on God's work. Because you're in the in-between. You're between the pain and the promise. And so God is calling you to trust him in humility. See, listen, God is already at work in what you can see. Think about this for a moment. He's already the one who is providing for your every need. He's already the one who keeps your heart beating every moment. He's already the one who fills your lungs with breath. With breath, He's already the one who spins the globe and moves the stars. He's already the one at work in the invisible growth of every leaf you've ever seen. He's already at work in the changing tides of history. He's already at work in the triumphs and failures of politicians, right? There is no work in all of creation that God didn't go first. He's already working in the seen things, and the unseen things. In that in-between, God is working. And some of his greatest work is on the human heart. I want you to hear this. If, if you're a parent, you need to hear this. If you're a friend of somebody who's struggling, you need to hear this. If you're you know, just struggling with your own uh, works, uh, works and, 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 and sins in your life, whatever it is, you need to hear this. You cannot change hearts you can't change hearts, but God can. God can change hearts. When you live in the in-between, it feels like, and we'll get to this in a minute, it feels like now I have to turn up the power, I have to turn up the energy so that I can try to accomplish what I was never try or never called to accomplish. And what God is saying is, I'm inviting you to humility, to say I'm going to live in-between. I'm going to live in the humility of saying, I don't know when the pain is going to end, but I know the promise is true. I know the promise is true because the one who gave it is true. And so I'm going to trust. I'm going to humble myself. And I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And when you wait, listen, when you wait, this is what happens. He shows up. But how are we able, how are we able to endure? It takes weakness. It takes weakness. Look at verse 4. He goes on to say this. This is incredible. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle to mold and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Look, Isaiah right here, he gives us three fours, three reasons why we can rejoice in that in-between stage. And the first two really have to do with God being this mighty warrior. And he uses this incredible imagery. Remember, the Assyrian army is invading right now, taking over territory. And God says, I want you to rejoice because I'm going I'm to show up and I'm going to take care of all your enemies. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to conquer them just like they're conquering you. I'm going to come in as a mighty warrior and fight your battles. I'm going to take down the oppressor. I'm going to set you free from all that you're struggling. He says, this is what's going to happen, right? And so he's calling them to rejoice in the promise. But look at the third four. This is the four. The the third four is, is a surprising reason in verse six. Look at what he says. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. A child? Wait a minute. I thought you were coming in like a mighty warrior. And we're supposed to rejoice because you're sending a child? What, what does this mean, right? And this is actually the third time in Isaiah that the child has shown up. In verse 7, the child is, is showing up for, for them to be called to trust God. In chapter 8, the child is showing up as a call to, to pursue God and not the judgment that was coming. And now in chapter 9, what's happening is God is using the child as this imagery of, of incredible irony. Because here, he's saying, I'm going to conquer all your enemies, but I'm going to do it in a way you never expected. I'm going to send a baby. One scholar said it like this, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized you is a child. This baby warrior will overcome all the evil and darkness in the world. I mean, that's the surprising reversal of humility. Humility is saying, I'm going to find power in weakness, in weakness. What's amazing to me is that Isaiah here, he he references back in, what is it, verse 4, he says it's going to be like the day of Midian. Now, if you know the story of Midian, you might remember this is actually the story of Gideon back in uh, Judges chapter 7. And Gideon was was being called because there was a similar situation. The Midianites were oppressing Israel at the time, and so you can imagine the tension is high, the, the pain is high, the difficulty is high. And so everybody's panicking, everyone's anxious, and Gideon is called to deliver Israel out of their oppression. And Gideon looks at God and says, How am I going to do anything about this? The Midianites are so strong, and I'm so weak. I come from the weakest people. I come from the smallest tribe. How can I be used in this way? And God says, no, you're my person. You're the person I'm calling to do this. I don't care what you say about your qualifications. You're going to be the person used for this. And so God sends Gideon into battle. And when they show up to battle, get this, it's already four to one. They're outnumbered. They have 32,000 soldiers and they don't have enough. And Gideon says, God, how are we going to win this battle? We're, we're outnumbered. And, and God says, well, actually, you have too many people. He says, I, w- I want you to go get rid of some soldiers. You, you have too many people. And so he goes and he cuts the army down to 10,000 people. Now they've got 10,000. They're even more outnumbered. And, and he says, God, how are we going to do this? And God says, no, you, you actually still have too many people. I want you to go back and cut some more soldiers from from the troops. And he keeps doing this until he gets down to 300 people. And at that point, it's 135,000 on the Midianite side and 300 on Gideon's side. It's 450 to one now. And God says, now I've got you right where I want you. Now go to battle. And when they go to battle... They defeat the Midianites with 135,000 soldiers. God says, "This, this is the way you win. It's weakness. My way of winning is always weakness. Or if you don't believe me, consider the Apostle Paul for a moment. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was probably the most influential person on Christianity other than Jesus himself. The Apostle Paul planted all these churches across the Mediterranean. He wrote half the New Testament. He was powerful. He was educated. He he was connected. he, He was trained under the best rabbis. All these things, right? The Apostle Paul was the person you would recruit for any team. But it wasn't until later on when Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh that I really understood the power of God. And, and the thorn in his flesh, we don't really know exactly what that was. Scholars speculate about whether it was a bodily ailment or some, some person or something that was happening. We don't know. But whatever it was, Paul says, this is what taught me God's power. And he said this. God said to him in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said before that, he said, I asked God to get rid of it. Take it away from me. Take it away from me. Take away my weakness. Take away my pain. Take away all the struggle in my life. I need it to be done with. And God says, no, my power is made perfect in your weakness. See, before that, Paul thought power was found in himself. It it was in his own status. It was in his own ability. And God had to break him to the point where he said, I have nothing left to trust but you. I have nothing left. See, we think the way to close the gap between the pain and the promise is to increase our power. We think the answer to our pain is more money. We think the answer to our pain is more influence, more followers, more vacation. Amen, somebody. We, we, we think the answer to our problem is more education, or more connections, or a bigger house, or a better car, or better children, or hey, so you, like we, we, we think if, if we can just have some more increase, if we can get bigger and better and be the best, do you notice the pattern I mean, this gospel of more and better really reveals our pride. It really reveals that we think at the core of our being, I am the agent of change. My politics will bring about change, or my influence will bring about change, or my voice will bring about change, or my new job promotion will bring about change. Whatever it is, we think that our, our agency I mean, do you hear the pattern? The pattern of pride is, I am at the center, and God is on the margins. And and, and the pattern of humility is the complete opposite. See, humility isn't seeking to build my own power. It's embracing God's power. It's embracing God's power. And so when I decrease, he increases. That's how it works. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And so what he's promising is there's perfect power in all your failed parenting. There's perfect power in all of of your money that doesn't line up at the end of the month. There's perfect power in the sickness that is taking your loved one. There's perfect power in, in your job conflict that is just stressing you out in the middle of the night. God is saying, wherever you are weak, that's where my power is strong. That's where my power is perfect. You hear that? It's perfect. Right there in that place. In all our broken relationships, in all our struggling marriages, wherever we are weak, God is strong. Humility knows that we don't close the gap in our own strength. God does. And he does it in the most surprising way. Weakness. It's in weakness. And so when we give up our power to trust God's power, this is where there's wonder. And this is the last point, and we'll close. Wonder. Look at verse 7. It says about the child, Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is amazing. In verse 6, we're told the child is going to overcome all this darkness. How is that going to happen? Well, now we find out it's because this child is the divine child, right? Isaiah has been describing this incredible person that this child will be. He'll be the wonderful counselor, which means the king is going to have the ability to strategize the victory. But not only is he going to be a counselor with incredible strategy, he's going to be a mighty God who has not just the strategy, the power. And then he's going to be an everlasting father who's because of his victory, is going to bring all people together into his family. And because of that, he's called the Prince of Peace, who's going to bring about this shalom, this flourishing, this wholeness, where there's going to be life out of every death, out of every loss. And so who is the child? He's Jesus, right? The child, his name is Jesus, but there's this vision that keeps increasing as the, as, as the prophet continues to describe who Jesus is. He says the increase of his government, there will be no end, right? When Jesus reigns, there will be no president or emperor or dictator or, or prime minister who will have any comparison to his reign. He will rule the world with truth and grace, as the hymn says. He will rule in justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What he's saying is this incredible reign of Jesus is going to be beyond your imagination. But how is he going to do it? This is the key. He's going to do it through humility. Isaiah says it like this. He says, the zeal of the Lord is going to do this. I love that because what he's saying is God is so zealous... So passionate for this renewal of all things, for this restoration, for your salvation, that God is going to do whatever it takes. Nothing is going to stop him. He will even become a child. In other words, what Isaiah is saying, there's not going to be anything that could stop him because God has set his heart on I am going to pursue you, I'm going to save you, I'm going to conquer all your enemies, even if it takes humiliation to get to the exaltation, because humiliation comes before the exaltation. In other words, humility is the path of glory. Humility is the path of glory, even for God himself, even for God himself. A couple years ago, I remember our uh, daughters got bikes for Christmas, and uh, we had three bike boxes. And if you ever had a, a bike come in a box, it's quite an event. There's a lot to put together, and lots of different parts, and uh, you know, you got the handlebars, and the seat, and the frame, and the tires, and all the different things. And don't forget the stickers. The stickers alone take an hour. I don't know. But there's so many parts to the bike box that I, I get all these parts out, and I lay them out, and I'm trying to put them together. And thankfully, I, I had some instructions, which I don't normally read the instructions, because I struggle with humility as well. But but I'm trying to read these instructions and I'm getting into a good flow and things are going well until I get to the last step of building this bike. The last step is you have to put the pedals on on the bike. And when you put the pedals on, usually all you do is just turn them, right? They, they just turn right in. They've got some threads and they screw right into the, to the frame. But as I'm turning it, the pedal's not going on. I don't know what's going on. I'm turning it, I'm turning it. I take it out, I look at it, and I'm thinking in my head, you know, righty, tidy lefty, loosey. That's what my dad taught me. Like, this, you're supposed to turn right to tighten it, and it's not working. And so I look at the instructions that I had been ignoring for a few minutes, and the instructions say, you have to turn left. And I, I, it, I didn't understand what was going on, and I started to think about it. I was like, wait a minute. It's because the pedals, when you pedal, you'll, you'll take the pedal out if you turn it to the right, and so they make them reverse threads So that actually when you pedal, you keep the pedal tight. And so you have to actually go against everything that feels natural. Everything that all the world has told you. Everything you've grown up, you turn right to tighten things. But this on the pedal, you have to turn left. It's the upside down of the kingdom. In other words, the way the kingdom works, the way the gospel works, is it's against everything you've ever known, everything you've ever imagined, where the world says the way to success is you go up, but it's really down. You don't turn right, you turn left. The way to glory is through humility. This is the way it was for Jesus. Jesus' own path of glory against all the world would say is powerful. Jesus conquers sin and suffering through his own humility. The shape of the gospel is up, then down. Jesus would be exalted forever, but first he would be emptied. Jesus would sit on a throne, but first he would be a servant. Jesus would wear a crown, but first he would wear our sin. Jesus would have a name above all names, but first he would have our shame. Jesus would have every knee bow before him, but first he would bow his head in death. Jesus would have every tongue confess that he's Lord, but first he would be rejected by even his friends. This is the wonder of humility. God saves the proud, people like you and me, through his own humility. He came for you and me because we thought we could save ourselves. He came for you and me because we didn't believe that we had a great need. He came for you and me because our debt was beyond our resources. He came for you and me because our sin required a Savior whose zeal could never be stopped, a zeal that wouldn't give up, A zeal that wouldn't stop at the gates of hell. A zeal that wouldn't be told no. A zeal that wouldn't imagine eternity without his glorious people. See, your God, this Jesus who's born to us, is so zealously in love with you. So zealously in love with you, he would give everything. Even his own life. Even his own son. See, we receive this gift of Jesus the same way he purchased it for us. It's humility. Humility is saying, I, I can't earn this myself. I, I didn't do enough. I, I don't have enough. I am coming to God with empty hands saying, I need to receive because I have nothing to offer. That, that's how you receive the good news of Jesus. You receive it in humility, but then you walk in the good news of Jesus the same way you receive him, in humility, with open hands, saying, God, I, I don't have anything to offer. And maybe you're here this morning and and you don't have a relationship with God and, and, and you find yourself in that place where you think the way to have a relationship with God is to somehow increase. I need to increase my diligence. I need to increase my discipline. I need to go to church more. I need to love people more. All those things are beautiful. But that's not how you receive the good news of Jesus. The way you receive it is to simply say, God, I have nothing. Can you give me everything? And when you receive the grace of Jesus, it transforms everything. It transforms everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good news in the gospel. Thank you for your humility that you would send your own son. You're zealous for our hearts. You are zealous for our souls. So zealous that you would give up everything so that you can conquer our greatest enemies, sin and death. You came for us, seeking and saving the lost. Lord Jesus, I pray for our hearts this morning as we come here full of pride in various ways, maybe pride that we're aware of or pride that we're unaware of. God, we pray that you would root that out. Turn us into a humble people, a trusting people, a waiting people who live between the pain of today and the promise of tomorrow, knowing that you have us, Right there in our weakness, you are strong. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet as we sing.